you know, here's the deal. You can give me 50,000 or you can give me 55,000. If you give me 55, I'm going to give you five back over the next year. They may only want to give you 50. That's clearly a potential for fraud. Now, if you tell the people what you're doing, I'm giving you, I'm sending your money back to you. That's not fraud. That's telling them what it is. But don't tell them they're getting a 5% yield because they're not getting any yield at all. They're getting their money back. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Gene Trowbridge from the Trowbridge Law Group. Gene is a very experienced real estate syndication attorney. And today, we talk about some of the proposed current changes to securities law, uh, some recent changes to securities law, and Gene's top four questions that all passive investors should ask of their syndicators. There's a lot of information in this one. There's so much information. Gene is a wealth of knowledge and experience in real estate syndication and real estate investing. He did it himself before becoming an attorney. So he really knows this stuff. You're gonna learn so much today. I know I did and you will as well. For those of you who are new to the show, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. Love learning new things. Love talking to experienced guys like Gene. And it was a great conversation. He's a a really brilliant and experienced guy. And you're going to learn something today. I know I did. Without any further ado, here we go with Gene. Gene, thank you for joining us today. Well, you're welcome, Tyler. I appreciate you having me. It's great to talk with you. You know, you're you're definitely a, a force to be reckoned with in the syndication space. But for our listeners out there who you know somehow don't know who you are, can you tell us a bit about your background and what you do? Okay, I am a um, I'm an attorney right now, and my law practice is specializes in securities law. And how did I get here? Well, I really had three three careers all involved in real estate. The first career I had was selling commercial real estate. And I did that for 10, 12 years. And then I was a syndicator for 15 years, primarily doing uh, building self-storage facilities here in uh, Southern California. And uh, one day I uh, decided that I'd had enough of that. And I went home and sat at the kitchen table with my wife where all the great decisions in life were made <laughs> and said that, you know, for the last 15 year chunk of my career, I think I'll go to law school and be a securities lawyer. That was 27 years ago. So it was a good choice. It was a good choice. I'm still doing it. Wow. That's something it's, it's very uncommon. I mean, to, <clears throat> to go back to school after you have your career established and everything, that's it's very admirable. What drove your, if you will, decision to, uh, you know, go over to the dark side, if you'll <laughs> pardon, uh, pardon the somewhat pejorative. No, that's all right. I thought, uh, I thought being an attorney is, uh, would be easy paperwork, sit at a desk, I didn't know how exciting it would be, and I didn't know how much of a how much it would support me in what I want to do is 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 mentor. Uh, while I was in the commercial real estate and the syndication world for forty years, I taught CCIM classes, uh, the most tenured of all the CCIM instructors, and uh, that really uh, that really made a difference in uh, my life. And I'll get back to that a little later when you ask me your questions. 
Nice. Well, there have been some potential changes that the SEC has proposed to securities laws and syndication laws. Uh, they haven't been in, enacted at this point uh, that we're talking, but wanted to get into that with you today and you know explain what the proposed changes are and how those things might impact passive investors and in, in syndications out there. All right. Yeah. You know, we've got a new administration and we don't know what the new administration is going to do with the SEC commissioners. But given given where we are, if you go back to 2012, Taylor, with um, the Jobs Act, they made a change bringing on advertising and regulation crowdfunding. And those two things were, um, along with Regulation A+, really, those three things were designed to improve the possibility of capital formation, uh, raising raising money. And in the 12 month period of time that the last 12 months that the SEC has uh, investigated this stuff, looking at the form Ds that are filed, uh, the private placement market was $1.8 trillion. Whoa. Seven times in the same amount of time, seven times the amount of money raised on Wall Street in IPOs. Wow. So it's huge. It's huge. And uh, you know, 99% of that money is raised in Regulation D, and almost all of it is raised in Rule 506. So that worked. Now, since that time, they made some changes in the definition of accredited investor. And just last December, those uh, changes were were finalized. And basically what they did is they went and said, you know, there are people who have experiences and education that may make them accredited other than just simply the $1 million net worth or the $200,000, $300,000 annual income. So they, they said, well, securities brokers, licensed securities brokers who work in the field of selling securities, we're going to call them accredited. People who work for syndicators and are important employees at the syndicators company, we're going to call them accredited. And then we're going to go down to family offices and say, if you have a family office, which has a lot of different people in it, all different ages and sophistication, if you just simply have $5 million of assets, you're going to be um, going to be accredited. So they really brought uh, experience into the discussion of accredited investors. And the next thing we're looking for, I think the rules are, have been agreed to, but they haven't published them. And after they're published, it'll be 60 or 90 days before they're finalized. They're going to uh, increase the dollar amount that you can raise in a in a Reg A plus up to 75,000, 75 million, excuse me, they're going to do something with uh, finders. Right now, you really can't raise money for someone else. If if you're doing your offering, Taylor, and I come to you and I say, I've got some investors, I could bring them to you. You'd want to tell me no, because I don't have a securities license. And you absolutely would not want to pay me for the same, for the same reason. But um, I guess what's going to happen, I haven't studied it too much because things always change and I'm not really concerned about what the proposal is until it's finalized. But the final rule, I think, is going to be that on a very loose 
very uh, casual basis, people can refer client uh, investors to syndicators, not get paid and not go through the offering with them, but uh, be a finder. And if that's the case, that's going to, once again, take another step toward opening up uh, the private placement world. You know, that $1.8 trillion, that's where all small businesses get their money. Uh, not all real estate for certain, but a lot of small businesses with, you know, four or 500 employees have to go to the marketplace to raise money to uh, grow their business. And, and that's where that happens. Not everyone can go to Wall Street. If only, if only that would be, well, no, I like, I like the private placement space. So, so we don't need to get Wall Street involved. And that's definitely interesting. Uh, the, the scale differences in terms of the dollars raised in, uh, in these different avenues. How in, you know, in your mind, maybe, maybe you've thought about this, maybe not. How do you see any of these rule changes? I mean, there's the accredited investor definition change, but there's also the kind of finder, you know, referrer definition change. How do you see that impacting passive investors in syndications out there? Will it make a big difference? What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's a pos- the finders uh, makes it possible that a passive investor will get introduced to a sponsor that they wouldn't have known before. I think that's good. When I was uh, raising money, everything was like 506B. That wasn't what it was, but it was like 506B. And I could I could raise all the money I wanted from all the accredited investors I could find, but I couldn't advertise. And every accredited investor, if they could find me, could invest with my deals, but I couldn't advertise. So when 506 came along, that made a big difference. Now I could go out and I could find all the accredited investors. They're like, 16 million households that are accredited investors. And I could go out now with my social media and find all the accredited investors and they can find me. Oh, that's pretty good. But that doesn't help with just the sophisticated investors. You know, 93% of that $1.8 trillion is raised in 506B, Hmm. where there's no advertising. So I think finders will be good because they'll be able to introduce people to you and your offerings and my clients and their offerings. So I think that's good. I think the bad side of it, it's going to be, there's all, there's going to be all sorts of fraud. There's going to be all sorts of uh, breaking the law right now. And if I mention them, you'd know them. There are sponsors out there who, who break the law every day, trying to get people to help them raise money. We ran into one sponsor late last year who had 17 people in their managing member entity. And they signed a contract with every one of those people that said, if you bring me X number of dollars, you're going to get to share so much in the manager entity. And that's just totally illegal. And uh, why wouldn't they, why wouldn't they step over the line and try to pay finders? I think it's, I think it's a can of worms, but uh, that's okay. (laughs) Interesting. So what do you, you from your perspective, when you run into a, a situation like that with such a sponsor where you find something mm-hmm. along those lines like what do you as a securities attorney uh what do you do i mean you're not a you're not a prosecutor as far as i know right so no i'm not a tattletale yeah but in in my situation people are tattletales to me mm. <laughs> and that's how i hear all this stuff and in my situation it was one of uh my clients who was approached by this person to bring some of his investors into the deal. And he wanted me to review the contract. So at least I could tell my client not to do that. Interesting. 
Interesting. It sounds like um, there's good potential for some of these potential rule changes that haven't been implemented yet, but there's a potential for them to uh, clean some of this up. But you mentioned, you know, there's also uh, potential for fraud and and things like that. Uh, do you see a, a greater potential with this new rule change for like fraud or misbehavior? Well, I'm, or I'm absolutely certain that uh, the introduction of finders into this whole world is 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 ripe with with problems ripe with problems but another place and you're kind of off of the subject another place i see fraud and i did a, a facebook post about this uh, a couple of weeks ago is when um and i'm talking to passive investors now when when you've invested passively in an entity and let's say they say they're going to give you seven percent preferred return and the quarter comes up and the sponsor, maybe they didn't make 7% or that share, that part of the 7%. So they reach over into their reserves and grab some money and put it with the money they made and send it out to you and say, here's your 7% uh, distribution. Well, that's fraud. You're telling people that they made 7% on their money, but all you're doing is really giving them their own money back. And, and then when the reason you had it in reserves is you're going to need it because you're going to redo the air conditioning system or something. And now when you go to redo the air conditioning system, you don't have the money. And it, it's just a snowball of effect. But that's absolutely, absolutely fraudulent to uh, give people their own money back and tell them that they're earning, that these are earnings that they're making. You wouldn't, you know, when you go down to the bank and take your interest out of the bank account, you know, if you're pulling more than just your interest, well, I'll take, I'll take $25 plus my interest. Well, you know that you're dipping into your own money. Okay. Mm -hmm. But uh, we have this now where sponsors don't, they don't tell people the other side of the coin is I have sponsors who do flat out tell people that I have my most prolific uh, syndicator, Taylor, who's done. I've done 120 offerings with them since 2014. Wow. They distribute 12%. 8% is preferred and 4% is an early return of their capital, period. And they tell people that. Okay. You don't tell them they're earning 12% on their money, which they're not. They're earning eight. That's weird. I, I wonder as a passive investor, I don't think I would go for that. I mean, is that a is that just a... I mean, you're, you're your client, right? So, is it's a, a lie. Is it a is it a lie? Interesting. Sure, it's absolutely a lie. And I and I and I tell my people, I said, you know, if you're supposed to give out seven and you can only give out five, tell the people that. Tell them, you know. Hmm. And uh, in fact, if it gets to that, you can only give out two, they'll probably tell you keep it. There's no, you know, we're, we're, our people are investing 50, 75, $100,000 at a time. They don't need that quarterly check to buy groceries. They want to save their money. They don't want to lose their money and have their investment to go bad just so you can make a distribution. But enough of that. I spent too much time on that. So I would be careful if I was a passive investor and I got my quarterly report and the quarterly report said that they made, you know, 5% and I got a check for seven, I'd be asking questions. Interesting. That's a that's an interesting point because that seems to be happy, happening across the industry with some amount of frequency, folks, uh, you know, over-raising is the, probably the common term that I've well, heard the most in that case. I, I'm not sure that's worse. That's more blatant. 
we're doing a value add property and we won't have any cash flow for the first two years. So I'm just going to raise an extra hundred thousand dollars. And then every quarter for the next two years, give some of that back to the investors. Really? Really? Do you want to raise that extra hundred thousand dollars and have, have your yield be calculated on that extra hundred thousand that you never really do anything with. You never invest. Uh, if you told the people, you know, here's the deal. You can give me 50,000 or you can give me 55,000. If you give me 55, I'm going to give you five back over the next year. They may only want to give you 50. That's clearly a potential for fraud. Now, if you tell the people what you're doing, I'm giving you, I'm sending your money back to you. That's not fraud. That's telling them what it is, but don't tell them they're getting a 5% yield because they're not getting any yield at all. They're getting their money back. Yeah, we see that all the time. And I know sponsors who say, well, my investors love to get a check. Well, I wonder if they really understand what's happening. It's that sensation of getting a check, getting the money back in your account, and it gives that uh, initial reward. And maybe you, as a passive investor, maybe you forget about, this is just me getting my money back. This is not really me yeah. making a return. Yeah. So I'm, I, think, I think we have to be real, real careful, careful of that. So we're talking to a lot of passives uh, on this uh, this call. I have. Um, I want to tell you the four questions that I think passives should ask. Okay. First Love of it. all, if you're going to be a passive investor in real estate, I think you need to go out and get educated in real estate. I don't think the sponsor is going to educate you in real estate. They might educate you on your deal. Mm-hmm. And you and I, Taylor, we both know all sorts of places out there where you can join groups, you can join meetup groups, you can go on the weekends, and you can learn. You can go to the mobile home university, you can go to the self-storage people, you can go to the multifamily people, and you can learn about the asset. I think the investor has that responsibility flat on their shoulders. Uh, In fact, if we're talking about a sophisticated investor, A sophisticated investor is someone who understands what the offering is. Well, that tells me that you different offerings take different levels of sophistication. You know, Mm -hmm. we're gonna we're gonna invest in a company that's going for a patent on a new uh, solar energy platform. Okay, that's different than we're gonna buy a twelve-unit apartment. (laughs) Yes, it's very different. You you know, you have to take that on your own. But then, what I think you should do, and the four questions are number. One, Taylor, you want me to give you $50,000. I think it's a good deal. I've looked at it. I think I will. But if I give you the $50,000, Taylor, what happens if something happens to you? It's a great question. Fantastic question. The number one question. Yeah. And so I tell people, you know, people call me and say, will you look at this offering? And I never do. I just say, here are the questions. You look at the offering and you kind of figure out if it's just an individual managing member, don't do it. I have been the replacement managing member six times in my life for wow. deals where the managing member could not carry on. Only one time was there a death, but <laughs> there's lawsuits, there's illness, and now we've got COVID. What, what would you ever do about investing in a deal where just one person is in charge of all this money? And you know that's the one person who can sign at the bank. That's the one person who can make decisions. Why would you do that? So that's number one. you got to find continuity. And I hope your syndicators are listening to this too, because this is a good idea. Some of them are out there. Hey, Taylor, uh, have you done this before? We've all had that question and we've all had to answer no. 
the first time. So you got to get your first deal done. Don't try to raise 20 million on your first deal. <laughs> try to get your first deal done. So when someone asks you, have you done this before? You can say, hell yes, once. That's all you need to say. Number three would be, um, Taylor, are you going to have any skin in the game? Now, m- m- that question meant a lot different to me when I was syndicating. When I was syndicating, that question had to be answered with how much money, how much cash are you investing? Are you going to, if your minimum investment is 50, are you going to put in the 50? Now it's a little different because now we take into consideration the fact that the sponsor, the syndicator signs on the loan. Mm-hmm. So that's skin in the game, right? So you have to uh, take into consideration the, the, the sign in the loan and the cash. And I really wouldn't invest if the investor didn't, uh, if the syndicator didn't have something, something in the deal. And then the last question is, Taylor, you know, I'm 72 years old. What happens if something happens to me during this? You say there's an eight or a 10 year old. Oh, what's your liquidity provision for me? And Taylor would say, well, we've had, you know, professionals draft our documents. And if you go to Article 11 and 12, you'll find a discussion on voluntary liquidity and involuntary liquidity. That, of course, assumes that Taylor's read his documents. <laughs> yes, it's it does. A pet peeve I have. <laughs> a pet peeve I have of syndicators is they wait and wait and wait. And they finally get their documents and now they got to raise money and they rush out and they hand their documents out before they've actually read them. They know what's in them because they've worked with the attorney putting them together, but they don't know where things are in the documents. And you just give that document to an engineer and then the engineer comes back. You know what I'm talking about? The oh, engineer yeah. Comes back, and you got to know where that stuff is. And if you don't, they're not going to invest with you now or ever. So is there continuity? Is there some sort of a track record? Uh, is there skin in the game? And is there a liquidity clause? And all the rest just kind of fill in the blanks. There's all sorts of things. I, you notice I didn't ask for, you don't ask them what the cap rate is or what the cash on cash is. That's all in the investors, in my opinion, in the investors' um, uh, responsibility to learn enough about the real estate so they can look at the the exhibit, the property package, the investment summary, and analyze for themselves if it looks like a good deal. I, I totally agree with that. I think um, I think not enough passive investors take sufficient time to get experienced with underwriting or doing some fairly basic due diligence on on the market or the comps or just really if you're looking at investing fifty, a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars. Why not spend a few hours doing some math calculations to see if this is a good home for your money? Well, I'm sure when you did your first deal, just like when I did my first deal, my first investors were just people who knew me. I had an I had an opportunity. Like every syndicator, I didn't have enough money to do it by myself. Mm-hmm. So I went out to other people and I just said, here's an opportunity. If I had the money myself, I'd do it. Do you want part of the opportunity? I didn't sell them anything part of the opportunity. And certainly over the first couple of offerings, they invested and my investors invested just because of me or they invest just because of you. No doubt about that. That's a good point about not knowing your documents and handing them to an engineer and then <laughs> getting questions back you're not prepared for. That is definitely true to my experience. You know, I actually learned that when I was uh, raising money, I always went to a meeting with 
two sets of documents in case I was you know, holding this document and I was saying, let's talk about Article 14. I wanted to be protected from the, the guy who reaches over and says, let's see this. Now, he's got my document. <laughs> that, only happened to, that only had to happen to me once before I learned, well, I'm going to take another, another copy. Well, no, this is my copy. I've got notes in it, but you can have your copy. <laughs> and then you have something, uh, you don't have to be completely off book with the, with the script and right. you have if something you're not to refer have to. All memorized. I mean, it's 150 pages, please. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's impossible <laughs> to memorize for, for normal humans. I definitely couldn't do it, but you should understand what's in it and where stuff is. Well, right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Gene, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show, you know this. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, great. First one, what's the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Teaching. How so? Teaching was uh, the best investment other than education. Yeah, because when you teach, you do get educated. But it also taught me people skills, taught me patience. And I, I'm not supposed to say education was important, but going to law school taught me that there's two sides, at least two sides to every story. And with two sides to every story and being patient, I was a better dad. And I think I'm a better husband for it. Nice. I like that. That's a, and that's they, a good answer. Divorce, the divorce attorneys, of course, say there's three sides to every story. His, <laughs> hers, and the truth. <laughs> nice. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Oh, the worst investment I ever made was signing up for some audio uh, audio courses that, that I was going to take. I wanted to be an accountant. So when I was in high school, I bought a package of courses to learn bookkeeping. And I did that for about 30 seconds. And <laughs> that, uh, and, you know, watching, uh, watching things like podcasts and learning, I, I do a, I do a course for rookies and at our law firm, Jonathan, my partner, and I, we do a course called Rookie Camp. And if you've done a syndication, you can't come. But but 15 people, two three-hour section sessions in a week, and we go through what we normally would have done if we had people come to a live class for the day. And with 15 people, there's all sorts of interaction. But boy, if there isn't that interaction, that's a painful way to learn stuff. Just sitting there listening to me drone on, that's painful. Ooh. I took one law class in college on patent law, no interaction, three hours long Wednesday night. And it was the most boring class. I, uh, I'm glad you have interaction in your, uh, syndications and securities classes That stuff can be dry. Yeah. Make it go by. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Uh, to listen, to listen whether I'm being asked to make a decision or I'm asking someone else to make a decision and where do I do my best listening for my life at the kitchen table. I've been married almost 50 years and uh, had a lot of stuff in our life, as you can imagine in 50 years. And as Jimmy Buffett says, some of it's magic and some of it's tragic. And but all in all, I've had a good life. So listening is, uh, really important you know you just don't you just don't know everything that's very I like true to think you, but i don't so <laughs> i learn a lot by uh 
I learn a lot by listening. Would you say that's a, a skill that you kind of came native with or you well, had, had to, to cultivate? Oh, I learned it through teaching. 40 years on the podium. I taught CCIM courses for 40 years. And I thought when I started out, I could just stand up there and tell people, tell people what I knew. And after two or three of those classes and looking at the critiques and the reviews, I said, gee, that that might not be enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think listening is that's a good question. Uh, a good question. I'll tell you what the biggest mistake I made in syndication was. Please love it. Uh, the, the biggest mistake was uh, when you're a syndicator, you know, you make money putting deals together. You get acquisition fees and you get all this stuff. So I guess if you're not on the street with an offering, you're not making money and you've got employees and bills and all that. So the biggest mistake I made one time, I was going to a conference and it was an international financial planning conference. And I knew all my competitors were going to be there. And I just couldn't stand at a booth that I paid $5,000 for if I didn't have an offering. So I rushed a deal. Hmm. I brought a deal to the street where I really didn't have the anchor tenant and never did get the anchor tenant. And it was, it was trouble. So I think you just have to be patient You You know, I have, I've been going through this interview process in the last couple months, Taylor, with people who I work with and who are in the business and, uh, I'd be surprised to tell you, or you'd be surprised how many syndicators who do a lot of business right now said that when they started, if they did one deal a year, they'd be happy. They had the right attitude. You know, go out and try to find something. And if you can find it and you can't buy it yourself, then maybe you can syndicate it. But don't just do this just to have a deal. You're really not in the business of raising money. You're in the business of managing money for people and help them creating wealth. So I th that that's my biggest, uh, my biggest mistake. Interesting. Okay? I really, I really appreciate that. I see, you know, a lot of folks who I have a lot of respect for, I'm on their investor list. I see a lot of their deals coming across doing a lot of deals these days, and I'm sure they're, they're great deals, but it's just interesting to see, to hear how things have really ramped up and, you know, we'll see people with well, four or five active deals at one time. There's a lot of money. I haven't had a, I bet since 2016, I haven't had a deal come to us that we wrote the documents for that didn't raise all the money. Wow. You haven't had, so you haven't had one that came up short. One that couldn't raise the money. Wow. And we put in our fee agreements that if this deal doesn't go, you've already paid me and I've got half of the work done. I'll just carry on with the next deal for you. So you don't have to pay again and I don't waste my work. But uh, we haven't had that. There's a lot of money out there. Wow. You're money in love with my deal. most prolific client has done 122 deals with me since 2014, raising between seven and 10 million a time. That's awesome. That's 506B, awesome. only accredited investors. And his, uh, his investor database is locked. He doesn't accept new investors anymore. Wow. You don't hear that very often. Yeah. Most people are out there with the, the fishing lines out trying to find yeah, <laughs> more investors. I mean, he, he knows, he just knows that when he brings a deal out, 30 people are going to send him a $50,000 check. He just knows. Nice. Hope he keeps <laughs> finding the deals for them. Yeah, it's good. Well, this was fun. 
Absolutely. Thank you for joining us today. If folks want to get in touch with you, if they want to find you somewhere on the internet, where can they do that? Well, the best place would be at my website, trowbridgelawgroup.com. And behind me, you can see my email, gene at trowbridgelawgroup.com. And just go ahead and uh, and look me up. Uh, send me an email. I, I treat my emails just like telephone calls. If it sounds kind of important, I'll just get on the phone and I'll call you right back. Awesome. I'd be happy to talk to everyone in your audience, uh, Taylor. Love it. And I'm sure you will get some uh, emails and calls here reaching out to you. Thank you for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated and it helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. We are now live streaming on YouTube. You could have joined this conversation live. We hope to see you on the next one. Look up the Passive Wealth Strategy Show on YouTube. Hit the subscribe, like button, you know, smash the like button, all that good stuff. And we look forward to seeing you in the future. Thank you for tuning in once again. I hope you have a great rest of your day and a great week. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.